Hello and welcome to Climactic, a podcast on the Climactic Collective, a group of independent podcasters from across the range of the climate communities of Australia and New Zealand. Every week on Climactic, rain or shine, we either produce or feature an episode of a climate-engaged podcast. This could be from one of the shows on the Climactic Collective or beyond, and you'll always find a link to the show we're featuring at the top of the show notes. My name is Mark, and I'm the publisher of the Climactic Collective and of this show. And if you ever have any questions, I'm always reachable at hello at climactic.fm. I'm in Tamaki Makoro, Auckland, New Zealand, Aotearoa. And I pay my respects to the iwi of Tamaki Makoro, and acknowledge their shared sovereignty over this land, as enshrined in Tetsuriti, the Treaty of Waitangi. This is an episode of At Risk in the Climate Crisis. And watch out for the word collaboratory, which gets said in the episode. It's delightful. This series is from former ABC radio host and environmental communicator Gretchen Miller, who invites a deep and personal dive into the impact of the climate crisis on our psyches as we feel our way forward in uncertain and turbulent times. I don't need to introduce this one much further. This is a really good podcast series from experts and passionate audio creators. You're going to love it. Enjoy. So I took a step back and I thought, right, what do I really want to do? And I came across a laboratory that was using fungi to produce important enzymes and engineering the fungi sort of like cell factories. So the enzymes were for bleaching paper. Instead of using bleach, which is extremely hazardous for the environment, they were using these enzymes from hot spring sort of organisms that they'd put into the fungi. So it was a really cool project. Dr. Hugh Gould there, and hello, welcome to the At Risk in the Climate Crisis podcast, where today, Technoscience has the microphone on both micro and geophysical scales. So what's the gain and what's at risk when we start playing with the complexities of the Earth's building blocks? From micro and synthetic biology to Earth systems and climate engineering, in this episode we're considering some of the new science that just perhaps might help with the unfolding climate crisis. I'm Gretchen Miller, recording here on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and welcome everyone to this podcast. The At Risk series examines how humans are embedded in the whole catastrophe as we hesitate on the edge of extinction to take necessary, critical, custodial action. In a world that it seems is constantly at risk, how might we use and evaluate technoscience? And is there any national or international oversight of this work? 
It's our research as thought leaders that can drive change. So how do we proceed from here? With us today on the show are four guests. You've just met Hugh Gould, and Hugh is a research scientist for the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries in the field of synthetic biology. He's also an honorary associate at Macquarie University. And we have with us Professor Michael Gillings. I'm a biologist from Macquarie University. My research mainly involves DNA diversity and how it generates the diversity of life on the planet. Michael has an eclectic research program with papers on viruses, diatoms, invertebrates, plants and sharks, and two of his main areas of inquiry are the origins and environmental consequences of antibiotic resistance and the disruptive new geological era of the Anthropocene that has ruptured the relatively benign climates of the Holocene. And this is Aaron Tang. I'm Aaron Tang. I'm doing a PhD at the Fender School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University. And my PhD is looking at the governance and politics of emerging technological solutions to climate change. You're an interdisciplinary scholar. What disciplines are you bringing to your work? I think it's everything in the kitchen sink for this one. I have a formal background in international relations and geography. But for my PhD, I've been bringing in things from systemic risk analysis, from social psychology, to pretty much everything, I think. We'll hear more from Aaron later in the show. Finally, Dr Melinda Coleman. I work for the Department of Primary Industries. I'm based up here at the National Marine Science Centre at Coffs Harbour and I research kelp forests. I grew up going to the New South Wales south coast on holidays and so to me kelp forests and their amazing biodiversity was just what was normal and what I grew up valuing and I think probably wasn't until I went to university and finished third year and was looking for something for further research that I sort of really started to understand that kelp forests were really underappreciated, undervalued and often out of sight and out of mind. So let's start our conversation then here on the south coast of Australia with its rich biodiversity of invertebrates, fish species and endemic species of seaweed all under threat. Pollution, poor water and over-harvesting are all challenges here, but the greatest threat is the climate crisis with its warming waters, marine heat waves and extreme events. Projections for Australian kelp, for example, under climate change scenarios, reveal a loss of over 70% of current distribution. They just underpin a huge amount of, you know, ecosystem goods and services. Um, they sequester carbon. They're just hugely underappreciated and, and undervalued our kelp forests. I decided to put my efforts into really trying to not just document issues surrounding kelp virus and decline and environmental problems, but really try to find solutions to ensure that, you know, we have kelp virus for, for future generations. When you talk about ecosystems, goods and services, that's a really interesting phrase. What does it mean? Ecosystem goods and services are all of those things that we get and, and value from kelp forests, from ecological aspects, so kelp forests providing food and shelter and habitat to a huge range of organisms, economic values, so our kelp forests support 
a lot of economically important species, things like lobster, abalone. They also store and sequester a lot of carbon, which is particularly important with ongoing climate change. And they're also hugely valuable, I guess, just in terms of their bequest value. So for people to be able to put their head underwater and appreciate and, I guess, enjoy kelp forests, not only for themselves, but to know that that's there for future generations. Melinda's been working with an international team of scientists to look at new methods to replant kelp in places it might survive better under a warming planet, including taking entire adult seaweed plants from areas that they still occur in, healthy seaweed forests, and then we remove those from the seabed and we bring them into areas such as Sydney and then we attach them to these engineered structures. We, you know, have plastic and various types of biodegradable mats that we drill into the seafloor and we get those seaweeds to reproduce and then the little babies settle onto the seabed and hopefully those new populations that we've created very rapidly become self-sustaining and attach themselves and start to reproduce and slowly spread. But it is an extremely slow process. Are there risks involved in actually interfering with the natural process, which is putting kelp in a place where it doesn't want to be anymore? (laughs) I think the choice of deciding when and where to restore is a really interesting one. Certainly you need to do your background research before you jump in and restore an area. Green gravel is a new technology that Melinda and an international team are working on. And it's particularly useful for kelp forests because they have this little microscopic stage of their life cycle. And that little microscopic stage called gametophytes are able to be seeded onto any type of gravel or rocks or small stones in the lab. And they can be very rapidly, even from a vessel, scattered onto the seabed. And then they lodge into cracks and crevices and into turfing seaweeds. And we're able to kind of cover much larger areas and try to restore larger areas very, very quickly. And so we're just in the early stages of of trialling this this new green gravel method. We've got pilot projects all over the world now for a whole range of different species and under a whole range of different circumstances. But it's, it's looking really promising so far that this could be a way to overcome some of those challenges of of underwater forest restoration. So Melinda's techniques are founded in microbiology, but Hugh Gould is working in synthetic biology, currently with yeast. What really makes me passionate about science is that I think that we can really have a sustainable and environmentally friendly future full of diversity and positive outcomes if we don't just write off gene technology, which I think a lot of people do out of, I guess, a combination of education and fear. But I think that when we look at what we could do with genetics, there's some really great outcomes. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with yeast? We've got these organisms like yeast and they are used to produce important chemicals. So things like we can produce some vaccines in yeast. We can produce things like insulin that you inject if you're a diabetic. We can use them to make beer and wine and bread and all sorts of stuff. They do many, many different things. So the cells are like little factories producing certain types of chemicals. What we're trying to do is design a yeast that we can tailor using a sort of a man-designed version of evolution, a human-designed version of evolution called scramble. We can essentially tailor the yeast 
to make a specific product. You might put in this yeast 2.0 cell, you might put the genes for a particular chemical and you turn on the scramble system and instead of having one yeast cell, one yeast strain, you end up with millions of different ones that you can all test to see which one's the best. And this is really important because at scale, an increase in production of 10% might be worth millions or billions of dollars. Yeah. With yeast, it's really, really, really easy to engineer them. So I liken them sometimes to a dry dock. I grew up in Newcastle and I used to look down at this big dry dock down in the harbour and they'd pick up a boat carcass and strip it and rebuild it and then put it back in the water. You can do that with DNA. You put it in yeast, it's extremely easy to engineer. So you could get a large plant chromosome, put it in yeast, do all the modifications, millions and millions of them, and then take it out of yeast and put it back into the plant. So I guess yeast is really good because it's quite easy to work with. I guess the thing about it is that biological systems are complex and unpredictable, yeah. And you've written about and talked about working with living systems rather than trying to exert total control of them. Yeah, I think that's an important thing is you just got to work with stuff, not against it. It doesn't work. What does it mean in practice? So if you're harnessing the biology rather than attempting to transform it, what are the risks of this kind of work when something works really well in the lab but might not when you let it out and when there's a whole lot of other factors to take into account? I think that the main risks come around reproducibility or stability of these kinds of systems. As a business, I would be maybe curious to see data about how stable some of these strains are in in a scale up. And to be honest, I don't have the answer and it would be an interesting experiment to do. So what do we risk when we start to play with the building blocks of life? Michael Gillings reminds us we're not just individual beings living on the surface of the earth. Absolutely everything is interconnected in ways we're only just beginning to grasp. So recently it's been discovered that there's this vast hidden microbial world. Now, of course, humans are an environment as well. And the same story is true of the human body. We're used to thinking of ourselves as individuals, as walking around, as being in control and being ourselves. In fact, most of us, in terms of cell number at least, are microbial cells. And it turns out that those microbial cells are centrally important for all sorts of aspects of human health, for development, for functioning of the immune system, for nutrition, for the way the brain works. It's not just, oh, look, take this particular form of yogurt. There's 15 different species in it. Well, no, you need probably three to 800 different species of bacteria. There are two things here that people think are set in stone. One is species and the other is individuals. It turns out that neither of those concepts are actually really solid. So just as a factoid, in Darwin's original On the Origin of Species, he never actually defines what a species is. And he says that species are a matter of convenience. They're a label that we use so that we each know what we're talking about. When I talk about an elephant, you know I'm talking about an elephant. 
So we can't just say, oh, Siberian tigers are going extinct. Every time an animal like that goes extinct, all of its microbiota go extinct as well. So, for instance, there's organisms that make their living in dental plaque of humans. They're only found on human teeth. That means a whole bunch more complexity when we humans try to preserve individual species. What we have to take into account is everything is a holobiont. That is, it's a host, but it's also all the species that host supports, including the organisms that live in your teeth plaque. Every animal at risk is also a whole zoo of microbiota at risk with them. So there are now calls for what's called conservation of the holobiont. So we wrote a paper on this, I think, in 2020. And what we're saying there is that if we are going to conserve organisms, we have to think about conserving the whole organism, not just the multicellular bit of it, right? So one example is there are a whole bunch of seed banks around the world the idea behind these is, you know, we're going to save all the seeds. We're going to keep them under nitrogen in cold storage so that if there's some kind of global catastrophe, we can plant seeds again and reconstruct all of the plants that have become extinct because, you know, a meteor hits or something like that. Now, the problem there is that every single plant also has a whole bunch of bacteria and fungi that live on its roots or on leaves or on surfaces and those things are essential for those plants to survive. So if you don't preserve the holobiont, you don't have a chance of germinating seeds and getting them to grow. Bush regeneration does not have the fungal diversity. So yes, people have got rid of the weeds and there are native species of plants flourishing again but the diversity has not been restored and it may well take a considerable amount of time for that to happen. One of the problems that we face over the next 100 years or so is that every single climatic zone in Australia is going to move 300 kilometres south. So we have to face up to the fact that if we want vegetation provinces, types of vegetation to survive, we're probably going to have to transplant them because plants can't walk. Animals can move, but plants take a long time to march across the landscape. So doing that, we're also going to have to know about the fungi and bacteria that those plants rely on and transplant those as well. What does that mean then for projects to say, you know, restore the kelp forests off the coasts of Sydney or what does that mean for all of our synthetic biology efforts? So the stark truth of the matter is that unless we reverse carbon emissions, we will permanently change the climate of the planet and all of the places where things currently live, their ideal spot will march 300 kilometres south. So that means... In 100 years, we are not going to be able, it's, it's, is it a Sisyphean task of, you know, we just can't maintain places, even of great natural beauty, for the next 100 years. The, the climate just isn't going to allow that. And we need to think about physically managing the planet 
and moving things around. Now, whether that is managing the planet with currently existing species and transplanting them, or whether that is tweaking, say, the symbionts that are in particular organisms. So, for instance, we might say, all right, there's lots of things on the Great Barrier Reef that depend on associations with photosynthetic algae. They're called symbiodinium. And corals, giant clams, some of the sea anemones, things like that, all actually use photosynthetic algae. So what we could do is we could think about, well, let's search for symbiodinium that tolerates higher temperatures. And we could then purposely introduce those into locations that are likely to be under temperature stress. In this series, in each conversation, we're aiming to hear something of the places themselves. Right now, you're listening to the sounds of the sea off the coast of Sydney, where the kelp forests are under threat. These are snapping shrimp, and by the way, this particular recording is being used to tempt oyster larvae to new artificial reefs in South Australia. But how can we help the kelp become more adaptive to stress situations? Melinda is already onto that. I think one of the main ways that we can do that is to understand that, that adaptive capacity of kelp forests through their genetics. So to understand which populations, for example, have really high genetic diversity or, or a whole range of different genotypes that are able to cope with a whole range of different conditions, but also to understand which of our seaweed forests, which of our seaweed populations are, for example, able to cope with, with higher temperatures. So, for example, with that 2011 marine heat wave, there's the potential for that to drive rapid adaptation to, you know, and, and increase thermal resilience. And if we have that sort of underlying information, it then opens up doors to, to think about future proofing and in our restoration efforts to start thinking about, well, can we target some of those kelp plants that we know are more thermally resilient and put them, say, down in Sydney or further south where we're already restoring a population to prepare those kelp forests for climate change and to ensure that they already have this ability to cope with warming temperatures that they're going to experience in the future. But, as Michael Gillings points out, we have to ask if that's going to work when you consider the hollow biont. Can we risk ignoring it? Yes, you're right. It's not a matter of transplanting one organism. We actually have to transplant entire ecosystems. How can we do that when the IPCC says we've got, you know, eight years to go? We can't do it for everything. We will lose lots and lots of organisms over the next hundred years. I mean, there are things that have nowhere else to go. So one example in Australia is the mountain pygmy possum. So if we lose that snow cover, mountain pygmy possums have nowhere to go because they can't go higher to get where it's going to snow. You know, there are all sorts of examples like that. What are the risks of all of this, you know, just exploding, really? Living things are complex. And as science and biology has progressed, every step along the way, we've come to realise that actually it's more complicated than we first thought it was. We do now have 
an advantage in that the rates that we can collect data and the complexity of ecosystems that we can characterize is improving vastly. Largely, I have to say, because of improvements in DNA sequencing technology. Michael has more to say about the pluses of scientific intervention on the micro scale. But first, let's talk about bigger incursions into the Earth's processes. Humans have the capacity now to alter the entire geosphere. Things become riskier again when we consider stratospheric aerosol injection and other geotechnical interferences. Aaron Tang. I think given the state of climate action around the world, which is not enough, we're probably going to have to buy time somehow to put renewables in or maybe even find a way to suck greenhouse gases out the atmosphere. One of the ways we can buy time and kind of put a mask over dangerous global warming is by injecting a bunch of particles in the atmosphere. This is called stratospheric aerosol injection. The idea behind this is if we put these particles in the atmosphere, mostly sulfur, they'll reflect sunlight and they'll cool the earth. That could buy us some time to put more renewables in, to suck greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, but that's the broad context that we're having this discussion in. How likely is it there'll be climate engineering in the near future, given the near future is what matters at the moment? I think it's difficult to say what the likelihood is going to be because there are so many subjective and political and social decisions that are going to be, have to be made in the short and long term. I think we can think about what's plausible, though. So what's consistent with what we know about politics, with society, and with technology? I think it's also important, instead of just considering likelihood, to consider the output, the payoff. So what could go horribly wrong if we use any of these new technologies? That's where I'm coming at with my work. Aaron and his colleague Luke Camp from Cambridge University have identified four dimensions for assessing the risk of reflecting sunlight back into the atmosphere. They are systemic risk, like introducing stressors into critical systems such as agriculture, catastrophic risk, such as triggering unforeseen ecological blowback, interactive risk, such as exacerbating the impacts of extreme weather or nuclear incident, and latent risk. When we kick the can down the road, we risk termination shock should something go wrong in the future. He says we have to assume humans are not going to do anything without making mistakes. Yeah, I mean, I think the way to think about it is if you poke the bear, you're going to get mauled. We're not going to do it perfectly because that's just not how people work human nature exists. And yeah, I think that if there's anything about human nature is that we're imperfect. When it comes to making mistakes, let's say 100 years ago, 200 years ago, if you made mistakes, yeah, a lot of people get hurt, could get hurt. A lot of people could die, but you weren't necessarily threatening the nature of life on earth. Now we've got a lot of new technology. So what technology is essentially, it makes us more capable. That means we can do more amazing things, but it also means that when we make mistakes, the consequences of our actions are so much more severe. We developed this framework by combining areas that exist in other disciplines, putting them together, and we did this such that when you look at risk, especially of emerging technologies, you do things in a systemic, holistic, and big-picture way. So the first prong of our framework is the direct catastrophic risks. Well, you're playing with sunlight. If you reduce sunlight in an irresponsible way, you could potentially reduce agricultural yields. 
if you're injecting things into the atmosphere, you could play around with certain atmospheric processes. You could affect rain, so then you could exacerbate drought or you could exacerbate flooding. I mean, essentially you're tinkering with the climate. So then if you tinker with the climate in a way that's not optimized and essentially perfect, then you open yourself up to a bunch of unknown unknowns. When it comes to something as complex as the climate system, a big <laughs> one that's relevant to climate engineering is extreme space weather. So this is just the sun going crazy, shooting out all these solar flares and geomagnetic storms. If a really, really extreme space weather event happened, what would likely happen is that the world's electrical infrastructure would be destroyed. That would already be a disaster. But let's add stratospheric aerosol injection to the picture. Remember the termination shock. If we don't reduce greenhouse gases underneath that mask and that mask is slightly taken away, we'll be dealing with crazy, far worse climate change than if we did nothing. Another big one is nuclear warfare or even just incidental nuclear deployment. So then, yeah, nuclear warfare, maybe you could talk about how countries are less willing to go to war with each other, fine. But then as long as nuclear warheads exist, the risk of incidental deployment exists. So the third dimension of our framework is systemic risk. Systemic risk is the idea that threats and consequences can cascade across different systems. And when they cascade across different systems, they can amplify. So then with COVID, we had a biological risk that cascaded into our social and political systems. It made poor governance, it made social inequality a lot worse than it already was. What are the systemic risks of engineering the climate? So there are many. We could think about agriculture, for example. Initial research shows that if we implement stratospheric aerosol injection properly in an optimized way, we could increase agricultural yields because we're not dealing with severe climate change that this destroys agriculture. But then I think even the fact that stratospheric aerosol injection could affect agriculture full stop is a big thing to worry about. The agricultural system as a whole is one that's very, very non-resilient. Our food systems are especially non-resilient. Even small perturbations in yields or prices can lead to cascades into social unrest and political instability. If we don't do things properly, perfectly with stratospheric aerosol injection, and we mess up the yields of these stable crops, well, that in itself would be a cascade into agricultural systems. It would cascade into social systems, economic systems, and political systems. Another potential systemic cascade to consider is politics. A big issue to consider if we're talking about political instability is who's liable for what goes wrong. We're already seeing that with climate change, liability is already a really controversial issue. So the developed economies don't want to admit liability for climate change. Imagine how things we could get with climate engineering. One country could say, hey, you caused this with your crazy climate engineering. You got to pay up. Another country might say, no, 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 we didn't do anything. That was just natural climate. There are so many ways in which politics could become unstable. Again, politics over a mask was hard. Politics over a mask over the earth is going to be even harder. So the final prong of our framework is latent risk. This is the idea that you may be taking on risks now, but because of certain conditions, they may seem okay. Conditions may change later on, in which case that latent risk would be triggered. So think of it as kind of storing risks for later. This is what we're doing with climate engineering, where we're storing this risk of termination shock. If we have six degrees of warming underneath this mask and we put this mask on, we're essentially saying, all right, we've got six degrees of warming risk and we're storing that as latent risk. And we're making a bet that in the decades that we'll have to have climate engineering implemented, 
will reduce greenhouse gases underneath this mask and we'll make sure that when it comes to using our mask, we're going to do it essentially perfectly. So that's where latent risk comes in. If something goes wrong, again, let's say with catastrophic risks or maybe systemic risks, then that latent risk could be triggered. And I think the big question to think about if we're talking about engineering the climate is how much latent risk are we storing and what are the trigger points of that latent risk? Well, that escalated quickly. If you've got the chills about this, you're not alone. Let's come back to the surface for a moment while we absorb these ideas. Back in the world of micro and synthetic biology, what are some of the less catastrophic risks? We have limited resources. How many people can be hopping in and out of the water checking on giant kelp forests, for example? Yeah, Underwater restoration is inherently risky and there have probably been globally, if we think about restoring any sort of underwater, not only seaweed forests, but seagrass forests and other sorts of underwater habitats, many, many projects fail. It's, it, it is extremely difficult, absolutely. We have big storms come through that wash up all of our hard efforts when we've attach these seaweed plants to the seabed to try to restore an area and often we're fighting nature and we're fighting multiple stresses and sort of ongoing stresses. We have big um, schools of herbivorous fish come through and eat all of the, the plants that we've just transplanted there and certainly restoration is not a one-off activity. It's, it's something that needs to be done over and over and over again. And it doesn't really matter what the method of restoration is, whether it's attaching new kelp plants to the seabed, whether it's scattering green gravel, or for example, removing sea urchins to allow kelp forests to recover. All of these different strategies do need ongoing efforts, and there are going to be ongoing stresses to these areas. Hugh Gould's concerns lie with the economics of this work. Um, if I'm sinking millions of dollars into a yeast 2.0 derived scale-up project, I'd want assurance that that strain is going to continue to produce the commodity of interest at the same capacity. Okay, so when you talk about stability, you're basically talking about not that it's going to go rogue, but that this fabulous thing isn't going to survive out there. And so all that money just gone. I mean, that's obviously the worst case scenario. And I don't think that there's evidence of that yet. But there have always been some surprises in biological systems. So who's assessing all this work? Which bodies make decisions about which future-facing projects go forward? And who's considering their ethical complications? Australia has the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, though many other countries don't have a single overseeing body like this one. And who makes the decisions about the dramatic geoengineering solutions we've been talking about? What sort of control is there? I suspect not much. You'd be correct. There's not a lot of control. I mean, the people who are looking into this at the moment are mostly academics and researchers. So then there are groups like the Carnegie Governance Initiative, that are trying to connect academic researchers and government stakeholders. There's another group, the International Risk Governance Center, based at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. So they work in just broad risk assessment, especially of emerging technologies like nanotechnology, synthetic biology, and also climate engineering. The research is very much going on with little oversight. There's social pressure from other scientists to maybe not do it or do it safely. There's social pressure from civil society actors to, again, not do it or do it safely, if even possible but no formal governance of research or implementation just yet. 
I mean, if we think about how difficult it is for governments to work with masks on people's faces for COVID, imagine how <laughs> difficult it would be to put a mask over the earth or even discuss it responsibly. Do you see synthetic biology and reflecting sunlight as being kind of, we've got the macro and the micro here. How do you see their relationship in terms of assessing them for risk? I think the similar strand between these two things is that they're emerging technologies. There are people working on them. There's not so much control over how people work on them. We know that we could have potential risks, but we don't really know what those risks are. If we don't really know what the risks are, the threat they pose, governance is difficult. So then the common strand is that, yeah, the technology is moving forward. Society, governance, politics, policy, it's lagging behind quite a bit. We don't really know what the risks are in this case. So who should be looking at those risks? Because basically we've got scientists working on both geoengineering and synthetic biology. Should these ethical decisions, really, they're ethical decisions and they're also socio-political, cultural decisions, be left in the hands of scientists or should the scientists who are working on these things be, do they have close relationships with other disciplines like the ethicists, for example? I think you got to have a bit of both. I think on one hand, if you're someone coming from the more natural sciences, it's important to engage with the humanities and the social sciences just on that individual level, because you need to have that understanding of the broader implications of your work. But it's also important to break down the disciplinary silos between different researchers. So right now, yeah, lots of the work in terms of testing is very much done by technological, natural science-minded people. Getting more humanities and social science people, especially for climate engineering, would be very, very important. It's not happening just yet, but it's something to work on in the near future. Imagine being someone like myself coming from the humanities and social sciences, trying to engage with these really deep and technical natural science questions. It's going to be really, really hard. So then there are definitely difficulties to dropping the interdisciplinary boundaries. It's important to try regardless because you get rid of groupthink, you broaden your perspectives, you ideally make better decisions, but it certainly won't be easy. In the humanities, we have certain fields like foresight, which can overcome that. We are not necessarily looking to the future to be correct. You're just looking to the future to see what's there. And depending on the possibilities, you're trying to use those insights to improve the present. But that's a far cry from the traditional scientific method, which is all about looking at the past and processing data, where with new technologies, with these difficult ethical questions, you're trying to work literally with no data. You're trying to work with something that does not exist yet. It's really, really hard. I think... The international community is not equipped very well at all to deal with new technologies. So even thinking about and talking about the risks is controversial. The size of the implications of this thinking is overwhelming. Some find it comforting to remember some perspective. Michael Gillings says, whatever we do, humans are just a blip in the evolutionary history of the Earth. We've been around a million years. It's nothing in comparison to 3.85 billion. Humans will go extinct. There's absolutely no doubt about that because everything has gone extinct. 99.999% of things are extinct. So in the meantime, what we have to think about is while we're here, let's maximise the life that we want to live without compromising, without mortgaging the future. So you could see Earth becoming 
at least the urban parts of the planet becoming a more managed set of ecosystems. You know, cities are just like termite mounds. The release of noxious gases into the atmosphere is exactly the same thing as, you know, 2.5 billion years ago when photosynthesizers released oxygen into the atmosphere and poisoned most of the planet. It's exactly the same phenomenon. So Just a little bit faster, right? <laughs> a little bit more chaotically. You, you see what I mean, that there are two perspectives here. One is the intergenerational perspective and the other is the 100 million years perspective. Sure. But, I mean, what I'm thinking about is the ethics of all this, right? What do we risk by tinkering in the way that we are? And what we risk if we don't use the knowledge that this rapid data collection is supplying us? Well, that's the set of questions that no one has the answer to, right? <laughs> What's your guess, your highly informed guess? Okay, so I would say we can't risk not doing anything, just sitting back and steady as she goes, because it's unsteady as she goes, right? We have to do something. We have to bear in mind the precautionary principle that we don't want to do something so outrageous that it actually makes things worse. So I think that some, for instance, of the geoengineering solutions for climate change, which is let's just make things smoggier, let's inject particles into the atmosphere and block the sunlight and stuff, I think that that's risky. I think that there are things that we can do that are low risk, but possibly also low impact as well. Thinking about microorganisms, though, what do we risk if we deliberately set about using microorganisms for proactive biogeochemistry in the context of where we are, you know, the climate crisis? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, again, we don't want to introduce the microbial cane toad to ecosystems. No, it's hard enough to kill the ones we can see, right? I think cane toads reproduce quickly. Well, microorganisms reproduce much, much, much more quickly than that. However, there are things around the edges that we could do. We could certainly engineer microorganisms to degrade plastic waste, to take care of lots of our waste products. So at the moment, we've got quite a good waste collection scheme, but a lot of that material doesn't get reused. The only way that we're ever going to manage resources is to recover the metals, the energy, the ions, everything out of that material, because Earth's finite. doesn't matter how big it is. Even if Earth was a ball of oil, eventually you burn it all up. So we are going to need to think carefully about 100% recycling. And I do see microorganisms having a big role in that because you can contain them. You can tailor a microorganism. You can engineer a microorganism because it's an engineering solution. It's just instead of using physical or chemical engineering, you're using microbial engineering instead. So I, I do see that as a way forward. And as you know, the Center for Synthetic Biology, that's one of their main driving aims is to reuse agricultural waste and turn it into things that are, that are useful. Look, resource depletion and climate change problems with different timescales. I mean, right at the moment, the most important thing that we have to do is to slow down our carbon emissions. And that will buy us time to deal with the other resource depletion problems. 
It's been said before, we have to have a circular economy. And that's where I see microbial engineering having a big input because microbial transformation processes are really efficient. So you would pick the microbial action over the geotechnical action. You'd bet on that. Even though it has the potential to escape and go cane-toed on us, yeah. What are the risks in going slow here? You know, we've left a few things too late. And some of this research, sometimes it feels like it's, it's marvellous, but is it fast enough? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess we won't know for about 50 years or so, will we? <laughs> well, I guess I'd like to ask you one last question before we finish up. And that is how you personally feel about this future world we're going to inhabit. And it is the strangest time. I feel like if I'd asked you this question 18 months ago, the answer may have been different. You know, I'm a biologist. So the reason I do what I do is because we live on this small blue marble stuck in the inky blackness of space that doesn't care about us. You know, this is the one place where all of this marvellous stuff happens. I'm sure there's other places in the universe with similar kinds of things going on, but we're never going to get there. This is where we live, and this is the place that is home. And it's fascinating and amazing, and there's all of this diversity out there and all of these things to discover still and marvellous landscapes and organisms and all sorts of things. You know, I do this every day, find new things that I've never seen before. And it fills me with wonder and delight. So with that in mind, the idea that this could be loss is deeply tragic. It actually fills me with despair. I also find it tragic that the lifespan of humans is so short that we don't know what it used to be like. But, you know, you can see the degradation of habitat in your own lifetime, and yet there's still things to discover. So I really think that there's lots of hope. I'm not, I'm not an entire pessimist. I think that we will pivot. And one of the things that actually makes me think that that's possible is the current COVID-19 pandemic. Think about two years ago when people who wore masks were treated with some suspicion, but we've more or less flipped a whole bunch of cultural things that we do, a whole bunch of activities, a whole bunch of mindsets really quickly. We can do the same with renewable energy. If we know that we have to do something, our behaviour is pretty plastic, and that's where my hope lies. Let's hear final words from one of the youngest guests on the show, Aaron Tang. I asked him to tell me why he's venturing into territory where society is saying, no, let's not even think about this, yet the work is going ahead. Why did he decide to examine something so ethically challenging and with such potentially risky outcomes? Mm. <laughs> Sorry, that's a really good question. I guess I haven't even answered that question for myself because I've always been in two minds about this, and I guess that's what this PhD was about. And unfortunately, I'm still very much in two minds about this because on one hand, look, climate action is not going well. We'll need something. We'll need something new to 
buy some time for renewables or sucking greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. On the other hand, yeah, look, I'm finding as well in my own research that this stuff is a lot more dangerous than people think already. So I think the big picture question that we're dealing with here, especially with climate engineering, is do we want a hothouse earth or a shithouse earth? Is where the hothouse earth is essentially worse than climate change or just severe climate change. A shithouse earth is probably something worse with climate engineering. There's so much uncertainty in this area that we might even just go somewhere in the middle where we're dealing with a hothouse earth and also make a shithouse earth at the same time. With newer technologies, you're actually working under the most extreme instances of uncertainty and even ambiguity where, yeah, look, it's probably a bad idea. I don't know what the effect of my research will be. I'm just doing what I can as a young PhD student here, I guess. Aren't we all? Aaron Tang there on the At Risk in the Climate Crisis podcast. And you also heard from Michael Gillings, Melinda Coleman and Hugh Gould. Thanks to all our guests and the team, Judy Rapley, sound engineer, Daniela Fulvi, production assistant, and our editors and executive producers, Josh Wodak and Jessica Weir. The podcast was written and produced by me, Gretchen Miller. And check out our other three episodes on loss and care, on ditching denialism, and on Indigenous leadership. This episode is funded by The Seed Box, a Mistreformis Environmental Humanities Collaboratory and the ARC Centre of Excellence in Synthetic Biology. It's supported by the Institute of Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. The theme music is Lickstick from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio. Media.